Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Let's check out our Bibles today and turn to uh, Psalm 3, Psalm 3 together. Uh, We're currently going through the first eight psalms. Why the first eight psalms? Well, we'll probably never have a time where we go through the whole book of psalms together as a church. There's 150 of them. It takes a very long time. And that is our custom, is to go through books of the Bible. Uh, But it would take us, you know, with holidays and everything, probably about four years to get through the psalms. Uh, So... Uh, we decided to just break up and take a few of them, eight of them. Another thing that's nice about doing them like this is because in the summertime with traveling, we can have different pastors jump in and teach these psalms, which are standalone in nature. There's not a lot of connection that you have to have to the psalm before or after it. So it's a much better kind of text for team teaching. And uh, that leads me to say to you guys that this is my last Sunday before a little time Away, So the next three Sundays, we'll have different pastors sharing Psalm 4, 5, and 6, and then I'll be back to teach Psalms 7 and 8, Lord willing, and then uh, we'll get into the book of Jonah after that. And we'll see if we like uh, the way this was laid out this year, then maybe next summer we'll pick it up in Psalm 9 and handle six or seven or eight Psalms together, and maybe over the next 15 or 20 years we can go through the book of Psalms together. (laughs) Let's read our psalm together. I've called this psalm a morning war cry. And it's one of those psalms that has a superscription. And I do want to mention before I read it that three times in this psalm there's a word selah. It's a musical word. Not every psalm has it. It probably means pause and reflect at this point. It might mean kick the key up an octave. Um, So we're not really sure, but it has something to do with music and poetry and some kind of pause at that point. Uh, Psalm 3, starting with the description, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Lord, we come to you this morning and pray that you would help us, Lord, to be a people who practice the principle or the template that's in this psalm. That every day we would wake up and when the pressures and anxieties or the obstacles 
or even opposition that we suspect we're about to face comes into our minds. Help us, Lord, to think the right things about you, to live in the experience and the implications of who you are, and to make good confessions about you, Lord, that you would take us from anxiety into a confident trust in you, living in the blessing that only you can provide. So we pray that by your spirit, you'd teach us and instruct us today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. When I was a little boy, uh, one Christmas, uh, my grandfather, who was a single man, he uh, bought me a, an alarm clock for, uh, for Christmas. Uh, this was a special alarm clock, though, because it was a talking alarm clock. It would actually out loud verbalize uh, the time to you. And I thought it was really cool, so I had it set up in my room, the big red letters and everything. And, you know, you'd set the alarm, and it would beep for a few seconds, and then it would say, the time is 7.15 a.m. And uh, like every alarm clock sound out there, at first I thought it was cool, and then it became the most dreaded sound <laughs> that I could ever dream of. It was the one sound I didn't want to hear. You know, all of us, if we, if we do wake up to an alarm clock, and if you don't, we're all jealous of you, uh, but we all have different sounds that we have as our alarm. We have so many options these days. Our phones have so many different sounds preloaded on them. You can uh, choose a favorite song, which won't really be your favorite song after a while if you choose it for your alarm. Uh, you can do lots of different things. You can even, if you're a homesteader, go old school and get a rooster. I mean, you can wake up to a lot of different sounds. And the reason I mention this is because this psalm is an alarm clock psalm. It's a morning psalm. In it, David goes from the natural state that he wakes up with, anxiety, fear, pressure, and he shifts into abundant confidence in God. Uh, to me, this psalm is a great depiction of what Paul calls the helmet of salvation. It's this method or template or pattern whereby God's children can have their minds protected from the warfare that they're about to enter into that day. Now, the beginning of the psalm, actually even before the first verse, it sets the stage uh, for us. It starts with this superscription uh, that says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Not every psalm gives us this detail or this backdrop, uh, but this is one of those few privileged songs where you get what happened, the moment that inspired uh, these words. So what was that backdrop? When was David fleeing from Absalom, his son? Well, you might be thinking about David and saying, oh, I know that guy. That's the guy who, as a young boy, battled against Goliath. And that is the David that we're talking about, but we're not talking about David in his younger years. We're talking about David as an older man. Uh, he had already, by this point in his life, infamously sinned with a woman named Bathsheba, uh, committed adultery with her, and then conspired to murder her husband, Uriah, once he discovered that she had become pregnant. 
And it seems that because David had fallen in such a way that he felt that he'd lost some of his moral authority. In other words, he felt, I am not qualified to speak into the lives of my children uh, on matters like these because of what I've done. And the reason I say that is because there was a son of his named Amnon who, as a grown man, violated his half-sister, a, a sister of his from another mother. They shared the same father, David. He violated Tamar, and David didn't really do much about it. Uh, this infuriated Tamar's full brother from the same mother, a man named Absalom. Absalom made and figured out a way to kill Amnon, and then he wouldn't stop there in his rampage of revenge, he conspired to take the throne from his father. And what he did is he stationed himself outside the gates of Jerusalem, and when people would come to the city, he would say, wouldn't it be nice to be able to visit the king, but the king is busy, he's occupied with other matters, but here I am, the king's son, I can hear your case. I will listen to you because I'm a man of the people and I truly care. And the hearts of the people of Israel were swayed by Absalom and his presence. It got to the point where David was in danger and had to flee for his life, running back into the very wilderness that he had spent a dozen or so years in when he fled from his father-in-law, the previous king, Saul, when David was just a young man. He is off the throne in Jerusalem and he's in the wilderness running for his life when he pens this incredible song. Now, David starts the psalm out by recounting the fact that he was vastly outnumbered. He uses the word many three times in the opening two verses, the opening stanza of the song. He said, many are my foes, many are rising against me, and many are saying that God is not going to help me. Now, when David said this, you know how we are. Sometimes we're a little dramatic. We're a little hyperbolic when we're talking about the tragedies or difficulties that we're going through. But David was not using hyperbole at all. Uh, in fact, when they counseled Absalom on what to do, his counselors told him, you need to attack David swiftly, quickly, immediately, because right now your army is like the sands of the sea in multitude. He'd acquired everybody. All the tribes had gone with him. David really was an outnumbered, outgunned man at this point. And what really seems to have bothered David was not just that he was on the run for his life, not just that he was outnumbered, but what they said about him. Look at the end of verse two. He said, they are saying there is no salvation for him in God. Now, when they said this about David, they weren't doubting whether God had power. They weren't doing that at all. They knew that God was powerful. They knew that God had ability. They knew that God could do whatever he wanted to do. What they doubted was that God would use his power on a man like David, use his power to rescue a man like David. David, the adulterer. David, the man with blood on his hands. 
David, the absentee father, David, the polygamist. These people, in making this profession, believed that David was washed up and that he was beyond the reach of God's grace. Even some of David's longtime faithful friends cashed in their chips and moved on from David into Absalom's new monarchy. Now, even though this is the backdrop of the song, once you get past the superscription, Absalom's name and the whole situation never appears ever again. It's actually rather generic in nature once you get into the details. If that superscription wasn't there, you wouldn't even know that that's the event that caused these lyrics. And this makes total sense when you consider the nature of what the Psalms even are. This is not just a man's private prayer journal. These are the public songs of prayer and praise for God's people, the people of Israel, and now in part, God's church today. So by the time this song came into the popular imagination, by the time this song made it onto, so to speak, their Spotify playlists, uh, it had become more general because they were singing this song for themselves. It wasn't a song that they sang about David, it was a song that they related to in their own lives, with their own anxieties, with their own pressures, with their own enemies. Absalom is forgotten in the song because the song is now in the public domain. It belongs to all of us. And I think that all of us can easily relate to the military angle or terminology that the song uses to describe the human experience and life. I mean, in verse two and in verse seven, David talks about enemies and foes. In verse two and in verse eight, he says that the goal is salvation, to win, victory. Uh, in verse three, he describes God as a shield. In verse six, he says that armies deploy against him. That's what it means when they set themselves against David. And even the prayer at the very end in verse seven, when he asks God to arise, it's very reminiscent of the song or the statement that the people of Israel would make when they would take the Ark of the Covenant and go into battle with it. They were asking God to arise in war on their behalf. I think the whole song sounds like a battle cry, which to me is why it's a perfect way to start each day. Each day, in a sense, is a new battle, a battle against our flesh, our sinful desires and impulses. Uh, it's a battle against a system, a world system that allures us into a way of living that's incongruent with God. And a battle against unseen spiritual forces that seek to destroy or decay us. So every day we have to cling to God for his help in this song gives us a little bit of a template for how to do so. So what are the things that David did? How did he climb from the anxiety into the strong confidence and standing in God's blessing? Well, I wanna show you three things from this song, starting with verse three and four. The first thing that I wanna tell you is that 
In this daily battle, we must practice good theology. We have to practice good theology. And I'll explain to you what I mean. David did this when he turned his gaze from the multitude of enemies to God himself. Look again at what he said in verse three and four. He said, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. This is what had happened to David. He saw in verse one and two the situation. He saw all that he was up against, but quickly he begins to get his eyes afresh on God. And this is an important step for us to take. Uh, in the life of Moses, uh, you know, Moses lived a fascinating life. He was 120 years old when he died. Uh, he was 40 years old when he fled from Egypt into the wilderness, 80 years old when he came back into Egypt to set the people of Israel free from their captivity. And then he led them for 40 years and died at the age of 120. And when he was about to die, the book of Deuteronomy was written, his words were recorded. And he told the tale, the story of something that had happened 40 years earlier that was a great tragedy in Israel. He, thinking that they were just going to leave Egypt and go straight into the promised land, sent 12 spies into the promised land to bring back a report to the rest of the people on what it was like where they were going. Uh, two of the spies came back and said, it's a beautiful land, it's flowing with milk and honey. God has picked out a great spot for us. But 10 of the spies could not get past the enemies and obstacles that were in the land. And their words to the people filled everyone with fear. And Moses, 40 years later, recounts their cowardly words when he says in Deuteronomy 1.28, they said, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the giants there. It was that report and the fact that they couldn't get past it that kept them out of God's beautiful best for their lives. Because they were fixated on the wrong thing and couldn't get past it, they were kept out of the radical blessings that God had in store for them. And their story, I think, helps to emphasize the importance of this second verse of David's prayer, of David's song. With a multitude of enemies, with a world of foes, David was in danger of becoming despondent by continually, over and over again, and only and exclusively looking at those obstacles. What he needed to do most was to turn from them to see God again. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I loved watching the, uh, the, the Disney cartoon, The Jungle Book. And uh, the main character in the story is a, is a little boy named Mowgli. And uh, somehow he's just, he's a little human in the jungle, which was just super freaky to me. Like, wow, I'm so glad I have a home, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but he was very vulnerable out there in the jungle. There were a few different predators, and the one that I hated the most was named Ka. He's a python that loved to try to strangle his prey uh, to eat them. Uh, but the way that he would do it was he had to kind of incapacitate his prey 
first by trying to hypnotize them. And I remember just being freaked out by this character. The snake is actually a hero, I think, in the book, but Disney was like, no one will believe that a snake is a hero. So they made him into this villain. He had these multicolored eyes, and he would try to get Mowgli to lock eyes with him. And as long as he locked eyes with him, Mowgli was vulnerable. And I remember watching that cartoon as a little boy just rooting for Mowgli, like all you gotta do is look somewhere else. Stop looking in his eyes. Look, if we're gonna make it against the foes that are against us and within us, if we're gonna make it in the times that we're in, we have to break eye contact and look to God. I'm sure you've had moments in your own life where you're just saying to yourself, I am just thinking way too much about the obstacles and enemies. I need to see God afresh. And that's what happened with David. And what did he see when he looked to God? Well, look at verse three. He called God his shield. That means that he felt that God was protecting him. In ancient times, like David's, a shield was made mostly of leather, attached or animal skins attached to a rim, attached to the left forearm of a soldier. It was designed to protect the vital organs of a soldier who was in battle, still able to fight with his right hand, protecting himself with his left. And it seems that the biblical writers, they thought of God a lot as a shield. I mean, we don't have enough time to even quote or read through a list of all the verses where God is spoken of as a shield in the Bible. For instance, Proverbs 30, verse five, says it like this. Every word of God proves true. God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Or Deuteronomy again, 33, 29, it calls the Lord the shield of your help. God even directly takes the title for himself when he talks to Abram in the book of Genesis and says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. So that's the first thing that David saw. God is my shield. Second, notice in verse three, he saw God as his glory. This one is very fascinating to me because of the situation that David was in. He had been the king of Israel. He really was the rightful king of Israel, but he'd been driven off of his throne. It it seems at that moment in his life, like he's lost everything, like he's lost all of his glory. He's lost his crown, he's lost his influence, he's lost his calling, he's lost his safety, he's lost his affluence, he's lost all of it. Every trend is downward and to the right in David's life at this point. But what he says here is, I haven't lost anything. God is my glory. My glory is not attached to a throne, it's not attached to what I've done, It's not attached to my success in life. It's not attached to my position or my influence. My glory is God himself. What a beautiful statement from David. And then thirdly, David saw God as the lifter of his head. Notice that in verse three. God is my my shield, he's my uh, glory, but he's also the lifter of my head. We, we don't probably speak of God like this all that often. Maybe you've sung a Christian song that speaks of God in this way, but this isn't normally the way that we would speak 
about God, but I think we can understand what David means. I think we'd be hard-pressed to even find a, a culture out there where a hanging head doesn't mean something negative. You know, someone with a hanging head, it could be that they're ashamed. Uh, it could be that they're sick or they're injured. It could be that they're fatigued, they're tired. But for whatever reason, that's not generally a positive attitude. The hanging head communicates in some way loss that has come into a person's life. And when David ran from Absalom, that's exactly what happened. His head was hanging low. It was covered, the Bible tells us, when he left from Jerusalem. He was weeping as he left Jerusalem. It was a sorrowful moment in David's life. But he looked at God and he said, but God, you are the one who will take this head of mine that is drooping and down and you will lift it up. Part of what God as the lifter of our head means is that God is the one who restores us to the position that we lost. Uh, there's another passage in the Bible that explains this a little bit. You might remember in the book of Genesis when Joseph was put into an Egyptian prison. Uh, eventually two of Pharaoh's servants were also put into that prison and they had vivid dreams that they felt meant something. And Joseph uh, offered, with God's help, to interpret those dreams for them. Uh, one of the servants was Pharaoh's cupbearer, and his dream meant that he would be restored. And here's how Joseph said it to him. He said, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office. So the idea of God being the lifter of our head or the lifter of David's head is that there's a restoration that's going to come. And by the way, isn't that so gospel? You know, that we as a people, we lost something. We lost our position of dominion. We lost our position of a relationship with God. But Jesus came through the cross and he makes a way to lift up our head, to get us back to what we lost, a right relationship with the living God, self-control and dominion once again. Imagine a young child that's sulking because of some failure in their lives, something they tried to accomplish but that they couldn't do. And you can imagine them sulking with their head low and then imagine a good father coming to them and speaking to them, and if they won't pick their heads up with his voice, what will a father do? He'll grab their little cheeks in his hands and lift up their head to look at him in the eye, and he'll say to them, I love you. I've seen your failure, but I love you. It's okay. And that is the idea of God as the lifter of our head. You see, like David, we have failures. Like David, we have our flaws. Some might even whisper that God is done with us. You might even whisper it to yourself. But just as he did for David, God, he helps us. David was helped from God's holy hill, that's what he prayed to, the mountain in Jerusalem. But we have a different holy hill. We have Mount Calvary, where God pushed past all of our shame to deliver us into the realm of his grace. He's our shield, in other words, because when Jesus died for us, he shielded us from God's judgment. He's our glory, in other words, 
Because when Jesus died for us, it became possible for God to be the best and most important part of our lives. And he is the lifter of our heads because when Jesus died for us, he made it possible for us to regain what we lost through our sin. All right, the second, though, big thing I wanna show you from the third movement of the song in verse five and six is that um, it's one thing to have that good theology about God, to even try to practice that good theology, but we have to actually let it sink in. We have to drink in the good results of who God is. We have to drink in these good results. That's what David did, and it led him to sing this third stanza of the song, verse five and six. Look at it again with me. He said, I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. In a sense, sleeping was the most dangerous thing that David could do in that moment where Absalom was pursuing him, wanting him dead. In fact, when you read First and Second Samuel, the advice that was given to Absalom by his counselors was, hey, right away, while David and his camp are sleeping, descend upon them and you'll have the victory. It was dangerous for David to sleep, but in another sense, this was all that David could do. He'd run out of energy, he'd run out of options, all he could do was go to sleep. He couldn't fight back, he couldn't argue, he couldn't campaign, he just had to rest, and in resting, he had to trust that God would defend him in the night. You see, it's one thing to have the theology that says, God is my shield, God is my glory, God is the lifter of my head, and then be the big stress ball who can't go to sleep at night. David was a person who said, these things are true about God, therefore, the best thing that I can do right now is go to bed. I'm gonna trust that God is gonna fight for me. I'm gonna trust that just as God delivered me from the hand of Goliath so many years ago, he'll deliver me right now from this new giant of an obstacle in my life. He went to sleep. I'm not uh, great at a a lot of things, but uh, I am very good at sleeping. I don't mean to brag about it, but (laughs) I always fall asleep very, very quickly. Uh, if it takes me longer than five minutes to fall into a deep sleep, I start getting angry. Like, what is wrong? Uh, My parents even tell a story about when I was a little baby, uh, just a little infant. They were driving along a single-lane highway late at night, and it was a foggy night, and I was in the back of their Volkswagen bug, and and my mom said I was in a, just like in a basket, not even strapped in at all, I was just in a basket, it was the late 70s, that's how they rolled back then. But I had that basket, super protective basket, I'm sure. But she was driving and as they went down the road, all of a sudden there was a drunk driver who had spun out and passed out uh, sideways, covering both lanes. And because it was foggy, she didn't see him for, uh, until it was too late and so she swerved clipped the car, the door, you know, got concaved, and then she ran the car up, this embankment, and then finally lost her momentum and just like kind of stopped at the top of this uh, hill. And they kind of looked around, 
and then looked back to see if I was okay, and guess who had not woken up? <laughs> this guy. So, so when, when I say that there have been a, a couple of seasons in my life where I can remember a trial being so intense that I couldn't sleep at night, um, it's saying something is the point I'm trying to make. And during those seasons, what I discovered is that the only way that I could sleep was through the process of prayer. And what I don't mean by that is that, you know, prayer is so boring that it'll really put you to sleep. You know, like counting sheep, just try praying. You'll be knocked out in a heartbeat. <laughs> what I mean is that the anxiety what was, is what was keeping me awake, but in getting my eyes on God afresh, it had a positive impact on my body and it allowed me to rest. Resting in the arms of God in the midst of the trial, I was able to sleep. And I think that's what David is rejoicing in. He's saying that the practical implications of who God is, it's affected me and now I'm sleeping. But not only did David sleep, he says in verse five, he said that he woke again because the Lord sustained him. This was like the big shock to David. It was one thing for him at night to say, all right, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna try to sleep. But then with Absalom breathing down his neck, for him to wake up, he felt like it was a little miracle. Like, God sustained me last night. All my body parts are still here. No one has slashed my throat while I've slept. God has preserved me. And he realized each day when he woke up, wow, God is protecting me. God is doing something in my life. Uh, recently, I rewatched the, uh, the 2010 blockbuster Inception. I don't know if any of you remember that movie. Super confusing uh, movie. But the basic plot is that there's this team of masterminds who figured out how to enter into the dreams of other people. And they do so so that they can steal their secrets and manipulate uh, their thoughts. But in order to do this, to go into these dreams, uh, they have to fall asleep as well, along with the original dreamer. So the problem is, what if there's an emergency in the real world and you're asleep? So they designed these things that they called kicks, that would wake them up at a set time or if a friend who was in the real world intervened. So in the opening scene, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's the main character, and he's asleep and he's dreaming in this wooden dining room chair that's on a raised platform above a bathtub filled with cold water. And an emergency starts breaking out in the real world. So one of his friends needing to wake him up takes the chair and tips him over backwards into this cold tub of water. It's slow motion and everything. And he is jolted awake and comes back to reality afresh. I think that for David, waking up each morning in this moment in his life, it was this kick that caused him to realize afresh the reality of God's grace. And I wonder if we could grow in this understanding of God's goodness as well. To each day when we arise, say, God has been faithful to me for another day. God has sustained me. He is good. But not only had God given David sleep and sustained David, 
The last good result that David drank in was courage. Look at verse six, he said, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, you can try to say that kind of sentence, you can try to pump up yourself in that kind of way, you can try to be inspired by a statement like that in a standalone way, but David was only able to say it because he was now connected to God. He says, God is with me. I'm not gonna be afraid by thousands of people who have set themselves against me. So again, the implications of who God is had impacted this man as he prayed to God. Okay, but the last thing I wanna show you that happened with David, the third thing that I think we can also do in the daily battle is to make a good confession. This is what happened to David. He said the correct things about God. Uh, look at verse seven and eight with me as we conclude together today. He said, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Right, the first thing that David confessed about God is he says, you know, God has defended me. Uh, he thinks back to all these times in his past, uh, times that God had, he said, struck his enemies on the teeth and broken the teeth of the wicked. I, I don't know that David was praying for this to happen. Uh, this might be one of those imprecatory psalms where he's praying for this to happen, but when you read the account of the way he felt about Absalom, he didn't want to see Absalom harmed or hurt or even injured, he was saddened when he heard that Absalom had died at the hands of Joab, uh, one of David's men. Uh, but what he's doing is he's recounting how God had uh, taken his enemies in the past and knocked their teeth out. Now what are teeth? In a predator, a teeth is, uh, are, are the primary weapon that they're going to use. They're eventually going to take you out. Think of like a great white shark or something. God removing the teeth, he's taking away the impact and the effect that these enemies would have in David's life. And David, I think, as he looked back on his life, he realized there were so many times where the teeth should have done more damage to me than they did. Like, for instance, remember when David was just a teenager and the prophet came to his home and said to his father, Jesse, today's a special day, it's a feast of the Lord, call all of your sons to this special festival. It would be a meal where one of the sons would be anointed to be the future king in Israel. Jesse went and invited all of his family except for, you know who? Little David. It's like he forgot about David. You know, like, oh, he's just, he's so young. He's the eighth son. I kind of see him we have less of a like son-father thing going on and more of like a master-slave kind of thing happening. That'd be a damaging thing to go through. But David, I think, looked back on that point in his life and he said, you know, the teeth, they were broken. They didn't ha it didn't have the effect on me that it should have. And I think he was able to do this throughout his whole life. His brother's ridicule of him didn't slow him. Goliath's taunts did not paralyze him. Saul's attacks did not slow him down. And surely what he's saying here is that Absalom's rebellion would not be the end of him either. God had always defended him, so David expected more 
of the same. But not only did David confess that God defends, he confessed that God saves. He said in verse eight that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to God. Now, why was this a cool thing for David to say? Well, remember the beginning of the song? The accusers of David said, there's no salvation for him in God. That God is not gonna flex his power on behalf of a man like that. And David is saying, no, I know God and salvation belongs to God. And so I'm safe with him. He thought of God in a very biblical way. Throughout the Bible, God is presented as the author and the finisher of salvation, that salvation belongs to him, that he initiates it in someone's life, that he produces it in our lives, and that he sustains it throughout our lives, and that he ultimately completes it one day when Christ returns in our lives. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And finally, David confessed that God blesses. Look at how the psalm ends. He says, your blessing be on your people. Your blessing be on your people. Now, when, when David ended his song like this, he's not just trying to find some artistic, spiritual-sounding phrase to land the plane. You know, like, oh, I don't know, I'll just talk about blessing. How are you doing today? Oh, so blessed. I have no idea what that means, but I'm blessed. That's not what David was saying. He's not scrambling for a good lyric. What he's doing is he's landing the prayer in the exact opposite place to where the prayer began. The prayer began with a multitude of foes. It ends with a singular God. The prayer began with foes who were cursing it ends with a God who is blessing. It began with foes cursing David, and it ends with God blessing all of his people. That's the prayer. These are the confessions that David made about God. God defends, God saves, and God blesses. What a beautiful way to start the day, to say I am convicted, convinced of these things about my God. Uh, recently, our, a portion of our pastoral team, we went down to Southern California for a little pastor's conference together, and we've discovered it's uh, cheaper and there's better fellowship if instead of getting a bunch of hotel rooms, we just get one Airbnb big house uh, together. And uh, it's fun to do it that way, but one added benefit is that uh, you get to see what everybody is like uh, first thing in the morning. And uh, we were even kind of recapping the conference, and, and we asked everybody what was, you know, one of your favorite things. And Pastor, this was Pastor Jeff's favorite thing, because he's the, the old guy on the team, and so he's up at like four in the morning, even if he doesn't want to be. He's just like, oh, I'm awake. And uh, so he's out in the living room, and he watches everybody, you know, come in like zombies, you know, looking for, have you made coffee? Is there coffee? Where's the coffee? You know, kind of thing. But everyone in this little psalm that we just studied today, everybody is presented as waking up, rising up. First, the enemies in verse one, they are rising against David. Then David, secondly, he went to sleep and then he awoke again, he rose up. And then lastly, God. Verse seven, he prayed, arise, O Lord. That's what I want you to do. I want you to get up, God. The idea is that each morning, 
we wake up filled with a consciousness of the obstacles or the troubles or the opposition that we might face or that we will face. But rather than pull the covers over our head to try to delay reality, or rather than turn on our phones or some other device or screen to try to distract ourselves from reality, instead what we should do is ask God to wake up too. God, I'm up, arise, O Lord. Our enemies are there, but so is God. And the anxious soul must go through the process of trusting God again for the new day. It's like this. It's like each day we have a choice. Be overwhelmed by the opposition or be confident in God's advocacy. That's our choice. But this is the path to get to that place. But listen, we're gonna have plenty of days where we don't do it, right? Plenty of days where we falter, plenty of days where we do it, but then we slip right back into the panic and freak out and all of that. We're gonna have plenty of moments like that. And when that happens, we have to stand comforted that this is also a song that Jesus sang. He sang it perfectly. Just as David was outnumbered, Jesus was surrounded by all the enemies while he was on the cross. And while he was on the cross, he heard people say similar things about him, that there's no salvation for you in God. And when, just as David knew God as his shield and his glory and the lifter of his head, Jesus looked to the Father to protect him from the permanence of the grave. He trusted that he would regain the glory that he had before the incarnation. He knew that God would lift his head. He even cried out to God, well, on the cross, first saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then in confidence later saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just as David slept and woke up again, Jesus slept in the grave, but he walked again in his glorious resurrection. And now, because of Jesus, we're really able to say salvation belongs to the Lord and his blessing can now be upon his people. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.